the scripture for today, Proverbs 22.6. We're going to go very deep in a very narrow set of passage today. So it says, starts out, train up your children in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So it's a fairly easy task, right? Nothing, nothing challenging there. Um, so before we get jump too much into it, I want to f- uh, cover seven primary questions that kind of come up with this first and um, really set the framework for, for where we're going to go in the future. So the first question that comes up is, what does it mean to train up? And this means in, in, essentially to, to dedicate your children, and dedication is a singular task. You cannot dedicate yourself to multiple things. When you get married, you are dedicated to, to one spouse. And so to... to as you dedicate your life in front of your children, you'll be dedicating yourself, um, not to many things, but you'll need to illustrate through your money, through your time, through how you love people, and through a whole myriad of things, how you're planning to dedicate yourself um, to, to the one true thing of, of God. And implicit in this verse, I think it's something fairly scary to Peachtree City, um, it should be, um, this, this verse should be read as an all-out war on the American dream, and dare I say the Peachtree City dream of health, wealth, and prosperity. Um, this will, could grind closely to some people's hearts, and, and honestly, I hope it does. So what is the goal here of this verse? The goal is not just to jerry-rig your children's heart to make sure that they don't go to the principal's office, they vote Republican, and they comb their hair over from the side like a nice little Republican child. But the goal, <laughs> the, the, the goal here is to, to change their heart. And honestly, the second half of the verse is, is probably, is really the call to action. It, it is to look forward. This is a planning exercise. It is a design exercise for you to sit down with your family and think forward. So if they love the child, if your child loves Jesus today, that they love it in the future. And it's a preparation project. So is this important? And I, I would say this is very important. Deuteronomy 6.4, um, Jesus calls this one of the most important verses of the Bible. Um, every Jewish child would repeat this daily. It's the Shemot. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your, mark, all of your might. And there's an immediate condition to this verse. Immediately following it says, And these words which I command you shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. So the first argument, the, the, the biggest argument out of the Bible, of the biggest command for us to do is immediately drop down onto a parent to say, Go out, go do this. Next question that commonly arises, What does the church have to do with this verse? The job of the church is to offer guidance to parents. The parent is still the primary, uh, has the primary responsibility of training up the child. Now, if you don't know where to start, the great news is the kid's space next door. The curriculum we use comes with videos, music, coloring sheets, content for your children. You can buy an app for two bucks a month. It comes directly to your phone. If you don't know where to start with training up your children, get the app. That's really a great place to start. Question number six that frequently comes up. What if I choose to just remain silent about God to my children? And this is sometimes done purposely, but oftentimes is just done passively, um, not wanting to necessarily explicitly train up the children. And either you will, you will train your children up in, in your absence or your presence, and they will, they will either see you worshiping God and make much of God as a result, or they will think that God and Jesus are a joke because you kept your mouth shut. Number seven, so when do I start? Training up your children should start immediately, as soon as they are born. Um, actually, let me correct that. They should start, you should start training up your children before you're born, and that usually starts with training up yourself. It should start with 
you praying for them even when they're in the womb. So before they're born, there's still people in there. And then until the day you die. And, and, and the hard thing here is oftentimes, especially when they're little, the thought is you're holding a little child and you're telling them something and it doesn't feel like, it, it just doesn't feel like you're giving them information and are they going to remember it? Even my two-year-old boy, if I tell him something now, he's not going to remember it in five minutes. So, so what's the point? So the, the, the parent's natural reaction, my reaction, honestly, sometimes is just to be passive and just let it pass. And then, you know, when they hit middle school, we'll hit them with some verses and they'll be fine. And that's, that's not the case. What, what, this metaphor kind of resonated with me. Somebody told me this one. But, um, so I lived with my parents for the first 18 years of my life. And my mom made me an enormous number of peanut butter sandwiches because I was a very picky eater. And of those thousands of peanut butter sandwiches, I remember hardly any of them. But the fact is, is that they all nourished me and sustained me to the next day. I think it's the same, same with the act of training up your children. Not everything is intellectual information transmission. There's heart level and a whole myriad of other things that you can do as you train up your children um, to, to, to follow God. Now, the hard truth about this in Peachtree City and in general is that Christians are not reproducing, and it's not that that place isn't full with little children. It's that Christians are not raising up adult Christians. Um, one survey done by a large denomination here in the U.S. is that they found that, uh, in tw- this was done in 2014, 88% of children raised in evangelical homes leave the church by the age of 18. That's terrible. But to be honest with you, as a graduate of McIntosh High School in 1999 here in Peachtree City, that's just about spot on with my experience. I filled up my summers, and especially in middle school, going from youth group um, summer activity to youth group summer activity at different churches with different friends. And now I look back at those people who I hung out with, and I have basically nothing in common with them spiritually. They all left the faith. Not all, well, I'm sure 88%, about close to that. Um... So, so, so why is that? And, and I think a lot of that has to do with uh, children turning adults not having a firm worldview. So if you think of worldview, worldview is how you look out into the world, how you perceive it, and then how you respond to it. And I would say that, that all my friends who walked away from the faith, they, they had either a puny worldview that, that could never be defended, or the worldview was just never really formulated to begin with. So the second thing that I think happens here to my high school friends was, was the notion of faith. And I, I think here, especially in um, American Christian culture, we look at faith as the belief in, that, belief in something that you can't prove or know, as though you're standing on a ledge and you're going to step out and you're just hoping something magical comes up and catches you so you don't die. But really, faith in the Bible means to believe in that which you do know. So if you take your children and plant them in this metaphor, you, you see them in a road with a myriad of choices in front of them. They have atheism, secularism, Baha'i, Muslim, whatever, whatever comes in front of them. But they will take, if you hand down your faith to them, they will take and walk down a path of Jesus because they have a factual Bible. They have a historical God who came down to earth and put on flesh. And they will walk down that path not because they're betting on an if. They, they will walk down that path because of what they absolutely do know. Behind on my slides, another rookie mistake. Alrighty, so, so uh, today we're going to talk about worldview of your children and how you formulate a worldview with your children. And I'd say that there's four primary pillars of a worldview, and those are origin, meaning, 
morality and destiny, all of these things go up to, to, um, to build up a child's worldview. And whether what, every person here has these four things figured out in their mind somehow, whether they're an atheist, a Christian, any, any sort of worldview, everybody has to deal with these four topics some way and somehow. So we're going to talk about how the Bible deals with them and how to raise up your children in the sense of them. So, but before I move in, so there's, there's four, uh, four footnotes I want to go through before we uh, cover these. Um, the first thing is, is that what I don't want this conversation to be is a browbeating against parents where it's, it's your command to straighten up and parent right. Um, the, the great thing about the Holy Spirit that, that dwells all Christians is that when you're convicted, it's going to be sweet. So if anybody here has a, a negative sensation about them or starts feeling angst or anger about being told how to raise your children, that is not from the Holy Spirit. And so today I want to invite you guys into the joy of raising children, not, the, not, not to look at raising children as shackles and burden and pain. Uh, footnote number two, and this message is mostly, uh, th- this message um, in general is for men, but not only for men. And by that, I mean God has called men here today to uniquely set the pace and tone for raising up their children. It's not that the wives are not a part of this. Husbands and wives are absolutely equal through this process, but men, you are called to a unique form of leadership by God. Number three, if you don't have children, and there's lots of us here in that case, if you are an empty nester or you don't have children yet, this message is especially for you. And the reason why is because you have been given this church family and there are tons of kids in it. And so what you wouldn't do is go to a family reunion and ignore a third of your family just because they don't operate on that same intellectual plane as you. You need to engage children, and especially you need to engage high schoolers, and there's a growing number of those sitting in this room today. If anybody walks out of here without engaging a high schooler today, I would say you've missed out on part of God's family. But here's the other thing of why, and why this is a big deal. When the knowledge, when the knowledge of God is preserved in a community, and that is you guys, especially by those who have personally experienced God's power, faith is nourished and obedient Obedience flourishes. You guys impact my children, so please do it well. Um, <laughs> um, the, the great thing I love about this church is that there's an enormous number of people who love them dearly and trust them, and I'm very appreciative of that. I, I honestly grew up kind of not feeling like the church was all that important, but it's this church where I finally kind of found that this is really a family. If I falter, I have somebody to lean on, and, and I think this is illustrated perfectly in all these people who love my children dearly. It's not easy to love children sometimes, and I, I thank you guys so much for, for being passionately um, loving of, of children, especially mine. But the vision I want to set forth for you guys is imagine yourselves as settling into Crosspoint into Peachtree City for a season, getting to know children. They begin to love you, and you get, begin to love them. And as you hold God's hand and walk with the Holy Spirit, you're going to find yourselves positioned perfectly in front of one of these children at some point where they have questions, they have needs, and you will get to see God's kingdom being built right in front of you. So please do not ignore the children of this church, especially the high schoolers. Final footnote, and this is, the, this is the hard one. If, if, if you have a child here today, or, or not here today, that is not walking in the faith with Jesus, I ask that you continue to pray for him. My daughter, Evie, 
she's, she's special and different. She's, she is a Christian, and, and me and my wife prayed for her to be a Christian and filled with the Holy Spirit even when she was in the womb. And we have no doubt about it. With George, we kind of have to rest into it right now in a season of uncertainty. If you ask him to pray, he usually fights and screams and does not do it. In the past two months, he's kind of changed that stance somewhat. But Amy and I still have to lean into that uncertainty in God and ask God to fill him with the Holy Spirit. George will continue to, will, has started to pray in the past couple months. And I, I, I believe that if you have children who are not walking in the faith, that God can and will soften the heart of those, those children as time goes on. So number one, origin of the four pillars. Origin meaning morality and destiny. The, what I mean by origin is, is that children need to be planted, have some sort of baseline by which to, to judge their existence, have a history to make them understand why they're here and why the world is the way it is. And they can only do that by having a firm footing in the horizontal story arc of the Bible. And here's what I mean by that. If you start out in Genesis, you should tell your children explicitly that God loves. Never forget that. Reformed types like myself like to accidentally forget that part. After, after, uh, after God loved and created us, the fall came, and bad things happened, and we started to run from God. After that, God began to pursue us. You, you get um, Exodus through Malachi, where God is repeatedly showing himself and showing how he's going to set apart a people to bring about Jesus and bring about salvation. And then you have the New Testament. You have um, redemption happen. Jesus comes on the scene, and where we were dead, now we're alive. Now, Romans through Jude is all about the church. This is where your children are going to learn how to, how to exist in life with, with non-believers and exist in life in a, church, in a church setting, which is sometimes very complicated. And then last and most gloriously is Revelations, where we, we get the picture of the new heavens and earth coming, to, um, coming down, and we get to be finally reconnected with God after we have been separated from him for all this time. Now, the importance here, the, the, well, first, the common cor uh, corruption of this in the Bible Belt is that we teach our children all these stories of the Bible as these disconnected fairy tales that have nothing to do with each other. But when you sit down with your children to tell them the stories of the Bible, it's not fairy tales. It's everything pointing to Jesus one after the other. The great book that gets plugged here a lot, and I'm going to plug it here again, is the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, it's a children's Bible, but honestly, it's a great read for adults. It does an excellent job of painting that picture of a continuous story from, um, of God's mission to, to love and save all of his children. So why is this necessary? Proverbs 14.26, in the fear of the Lord, one has confidence in his children. In the fear of the Lord, one has confidence, and his children will, be re will have refuge. The important thing here is that if children are not grounded in this horizontal story arc, they will be confused, and they will not know how to deal with life. Now, I'm going to read a quick poem here. Um, it's by Stephen Turner. It's called Creed, and this to me illustrates perfectly what it looks like when a child does not have the grounding of origin in their life, and they're left to ultimate confusion. So this is a very sarcastic poem, um, observing the world around us. We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe that everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt and to the best of your knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun, and we believe that sodomy is okay, and we believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything is getting better despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated, and you can prove anything with evidence. 
We believe that there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, although we think his morals were actually bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we read was. They all believe in love, goodness. They only differ on the matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that after death comes the nothing because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death, be, if death is not the end and the dead have lied, then it is compulsory heaven for all except perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society, society is the fault of conditions, and conditions is the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that, it, that is right for him, reality will adopt accordingly, the universe will readjust, history will alter, and we, and we believe that there is no absolute truth except the truth that there is no absolute truth. Now this is the postscript of the poem, and this is where he kind of starts to grab these, these loose ends and tie them together. If chance be the father of flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear state of emergency, sniper kills 10, troops on rampage, youths go looting, bomb blasts school, it is but the sound of man worshiping his maker. The point of this poem is to paint a picture that left to their own devices, our children will create their own truth and it'll be completely illogical and confusing because it is not bound to anything of truth. The gospel is the only thing that provides a baseline for meaning in a child's life. So number two, meaning. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. A loss of truth will lead to a loss of origin. A loss of origin will lead inevitably to an overwhelming sense of meaninglessness. So why is meaning important? Have you guys heard of Ronda Rousey? She is an MMA fighter, and um, she was undefeated until November, and she could beat up everybody in this room all at once. Um, she, she, most of her wins came in the first round, sometimes in under a minute, and she, she came to a fight in November, and she lost. And this is an interview of her. Myself, and maybe I'll, I won't do this again? No, to be honest, like, what I was thinking, like, my, honestly, like, my thought, I was, like, I was, like, in the medical room, and I was, like, down in the corner, I was sitting in the corner, and I was, like, what am I anymore if I'm not this? And I was literally sitting there and, like, thinking about killing myself in that exact second. I'm like, I'm nothing. I'm like, what do I do anymore? And no one gives a shit about me anymore without this. And, and um, to be honest, I looked up and I saw my man, Travis was standing there and I was looked up at him and I was just like, I need to have his babies. I need to stay alive. <laughs> that was like, really, that was You need to stay alive. <laughs> and uh, I hadn't told anybody that. I think I only told him that. Um, but that was like what I was thinking, like I, I was meant to have him when, when I was at my lowest, for sure. Yeah. So the point of this, this video is to illustrate that, 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 that the lowliest moment in life will come when you have what you think is the ultimate and it lets you down. If you, if you didn't catch it, Miss Rousey moved from enchantment of I'm the, I'm the best fighter in the world and that is everything to me. And then she loses that and she moves on, well, maybe I just need to start having kids. And for those of you who have kids, do children ever frustrate you or let you down? She, somebody needs to tell Miss Rousey. She is bound to be let down. So N.T. Wright, one of my favorite authors, he, he, he starts to kind of tease at this, this topic here of what we're made for. Made for spirituality, we wallow in introspection. 
Made for joy, we will settle for pleasure. Made for justice, we clamor for vengeance. Made for relationship, we insist on our own way. Made for beauty, we are satisfied with sentiment. But, but new creation has begun. The sun has begun to rise. Christians are called to leave behind the tomb of Jesus, all, the, all that belongs to the brokenness and incompleteness of this present world. That, quite simply, is what it means to be a Christian, to follow Jesus Christ into the new world, God's new world, which has been thrown open before us. Meaning is not found in some pithy identity that comes in the form of a gold belt that goes around your waist. Meaning is only going to be found in Jesus. Now, the, the, the difficult part here, Ronda Rousey was moving from enchantment to enchantment, and our children today have more enchantments from which to jump to than any other generation in the history of the world. So how do we build meaning in a child's life so they just don't become satisfied with pithy enchantments? And I think that has to do, first, with gratitude, and secondly, with, with, uh, with a wonder of God. So I'm going to read this um, next poem from James Stewart. Um, he does this excellent job of painting Jesus as a wonder who is worth being worshipped from now and until the day we die. And this is the complexity and beauty of Jesus. He was the meekest and lowliest of all, the sons of men, yet he spoke of the coming in the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that the evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him, and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine. No one was so half-compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how, how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams and a seer of visions. Yet for sheer stark realism, he has all our stark realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet. Yet masterfully he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and the money changers fell over one another to get away from the mad rush and the fire that they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at the last himself he did not save. There is nothing in history like the union and contrast which confronts us in the gospel. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. There is no greater enchantment for your children to be focused on than that of Jesus Christ. Paul in Ephesians points out, one, uh, Ephesians 1, 18 and 19, that may that we may know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us as believers. Paul had to go and tell the Ephesians, just like we need to be told, hey, there's something big here. Your salvation was bought. This is huge. Dive into Jesus. And then later in Ephesians, and what I think something that needs to be reiterated to children very frequently is this. Ephesians 2, 1 and 5. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive. And that there is no greater enchantment in your child's life than them pondering for the rest of eternity that they were bought and that they are a walking resurrection, which is extremely hard and complex even for adults to tackle, but is very worthy of all of our children to, to address. So number three, morality. Morality for our children is how, how they deal with right from wrong and how they respond to it will illustrate their theology and their doctrine. Now the corruption of this in the Bible Belt is, is taking 
moving away from heart issues and looking towards behavior modification. We hope that they don't go to the principal's office. We hope that they, they go to college, they get a good job, they have 2.5 kids, have a picket fence, and a relatively easy life. And that is all based on making sure to check moral checkboxes. But that's not how the Bible deals with things. I want to illustrate that with my son George here. This is about a week after Halloween, and he knows where the candy is. And after he did not finish dinner, he was instructed that he was not to have candy. And so what does he do? Pushes the chair over to the counter, climbs up, gets himself a sucker, gets that big old fat cheek in the side of his mouth and turns around. Now, Amy had walked in, my wife had walked into me, um, walked in next to me when I was sitting here watching this. And that's probably terrible parenting for me just sitting here watching and taking pictures while he does it. So I'll admit that. But we'll just ignore that fact for a moment. Amy, Amy goes... Who told you you could get that sucker? And he looks over at me and he goes, Daddy. Like, <laughs> he's not even good at sin. He's a terrible <laughs> sinner. Now, now the, the interesting thing here, so if you, if you take this type of misbehavior and you look at it not through the lens of the Bible but through the lens of the world, we'll see, well, maybe we should have blamed it on the environment. Maybe we should have put the candy up on a higher shelf where he couldn't reach it. And what would that have done? That would have done nothing. That would have just... That his, his propensity for rebellion would have still been there. Or if num- another common way the world deals with, with sin and rebellion is to say, well, maybe you just need to build up that child. Give him a higher self-esteem. Maybe we should have told him, George, you're better than candy. You don't need candy. And, and just throw at him all the ethics classes that you're forced to take in college. And that, too, is absolute foolishness. Because what's he going to do? He's going to crawl up under the counter. He still wants the, count, the candy, so he's going to put the candy in his mouth. And he's going to turn around and give me the finger because he thinks he's better than me. The Bible handles morality very, very differently. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all the vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Your heart with your children should be the center of conversation when it comes to morality. Psalm 51.5 says that we were wicked from our womb. This is a hard thing for a lot of parents to take, grandparents too. Our children are wicked from the womb because of Adam's fall, and we need to deal with that appropriately when it comes to, when it, when it comes to our children. Now, practically, this was a mistake I made when I first became a dad, and I was working in the kids' ministry, uh, like the children's area with my wife, and she was much smarter than me. Um, I saw two kids fighting for a toy, and my first reaction as a new dad was, okay, who had it first? Because that's that's apparently the point, and it's not. My wife kindly corrected me and said, no, 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 you need to change that. So the real question is, when you see two children fighting over a toy, is why aren't you sharing that? Why aren't you giving that toy to them? And you get down to the heart level, not because who had it first, what's fair, as though this is Judge Judy and we're going to work this out right now. It comes down to a heart issue that you're wicked, you need to find joy in having other people be happy and loving other people. Have you guys ever read the book of Job through the lens of being a parent? This is really interesting. I had never till, till this week. But the book of Job, if you, Job, before he got put through the ringer, he's, he, there's some points where he's actually this really good dad. So Job 1 through 5, um, actually this is just 5. And so this is describing his, his children were out partying. So this is in reference to his children. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them. And rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. 
Job was a really good dad because he was concerned about their heart. There was absolutely no evidence that their partying was anything bad. They were out partying in the name of Christ for, for all we know. But he was still concerned first and foremost about their heart. The linchpin of morality for your children isn't checking moral boxes. It's about having heart regeneration. And if you think of this, the origin part that we just talked about, this kind of more information um, set of data that you're trying to pour into them, if, if you don't have a regenerate heart in your child, you can pour all the origin, all the truth, all the facts you want into them, and it's going to be like pouring water into a bucket full of holes. It's just going to go right out. A regenerate heart is absolutely requisite to have moral children. So fourth, destiny. So this is a hard one, and, and honestly, we, I get this wrong. I got this wrong for years. Um, in order for us to have children grounded with a good worldview, we must point them in a, a direction and give them a vision of what is coming that is accurate and true, and Western Christianity will get this wrong. We tend to picture Jesus' ascension to heaven as kind of him going off to the control room of heaven and us just kind of stuck down here in the muck here on earth still. So the incorrect way to view this, the incorrect way to paint heaven to your children is seeing that heaven is a place separated from earth. And N.T. Wright says this, heaven is God's space and earth is our space. The heavens belong to Yahweh, declares the psalmist, and the earth he has given to the human race. But the point of God's split-level creation, good creation, heaven and earth, is not that earth is kind of a training ground for heaven, but that heaven and earth are designed to overlap and interlock, and that one day, as the book of Revelations makes very clear, one day they will do so fully and forever as the new Jerusalem comes down from the heavens. So your children should know this, that the kingdom of God is now. That it's not just out there sometime, once we get the privilege of dying, we get to go somewhere better. A child should not see life as a throwaway waiting room where they're just killing time. They tend, if they do, if your children do see heaven is in this way, they will tend to treat the world and those in it as the trash they imagine it to be. But if your children see this world and this life as something that matters, they will fight for what is right. Their motivations will be to love their neighbor and tell them about Jesus and the amazing thing that's going to happen is in front of them, they're going to see the building blocks of the new Jerusalem being stacked right in front of them as the Holy Spirit moves alongside of them and in them. So how do we make this training practical? This covered probably more theology than practice. So here, I, I did a formal, informal survey of, of some friends, some people who, who love Jesus and are fathers, and asked them practically how they put their feet to the ground to find out or to, to satisfy the command to train up their children. And I have nine things that, that, that they told me that I thought were important. Number one, they need to give and serve as a family. If you involve your children in the act of giving and serving, what are they going to do when they grow up? If they have a say in the matter, they will have a vested interest, and they will begin to process very clearly why and how they should be doing things. Number two, Repent to your children. This is important because where else on earth are they going to learn how to repent? Not anywhere else. And this, the other great thing about repenting to your children is that a lot of times training up your children gets confused with information transmission as though it's a, a cognitive download to, to a little being. But, but what it fails to get at, if, if you just pursue that, is it pursuing your child at the heart level. Repenting the, to them will allow you to drive at them with your heart. Number three, 
Pray to your children. Ask them what they want to tell God, and then pray in front of them in such a way that you give them an example by which to pray themselves. Number four, discipline your children. Be consistent with your children and have high expectations for their behavior and set out to have personal endurance to correct them repeatedly until they obey. And that's probably more on parents than it is on kids. The the, the endurance that it takes is wonderful. Set high expectations, number five. This one I'm pretty passionate about. This, is, this kind of gets to the point that there's no magical age of accountability with children where they suddenly get to be, be smart enough to believe and understand the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.15 talks about how from infancy, Timothy knew the Holy Scriptures. So if an infant can understand the Scriptures, what is your little three-year-old going to find out? Having a five-year-old myself, she is, over the course of the years, even when she was three and four, she was dealing with heaven, hell, sin, salvation, the Trinity, predestination, and a whole lot of things that are really hard for adults to even comprehend. Worldview happens at an extremely early age. Number six, this is the fun one, critique culture. Sermons are preached elsewhere other than this building, especially Disney movies. Disney movies preach some of the worst sermons the song Let It Go, every little girl under the age of seven knows the song Let It Go, and I wish I had more time to break into this more, but if, if one of the easiest things for you to do as a parent is just to sit down with your children and do film and theology with them. They all love to watch Disney, and Disney is just wicked, all of it. It's all new age. It's all pursuit of idols. If, if you look at the, the, the lyrics to the song Frozen, it's just filled with rebellion, how much they want to di- uh, disconnect from life, and every, do- every Disney song throws in some sort of new age line about being connected with the wind and sky and stuff like that. So, easy, wonderful things. Critique culture, be aggressive, and, uh, and it's the fun part. Number seven, take, take deep interactive interest in what your kids are interested in. Your husband, Courtney, gave me this one. Evaluating a child's heart will start first with understanding that which they are passionate about. Number eight, show affection. Dads, this is important, especially important for you and your daughters. Your job as, your, as a dad is to fill them up with so many hugs and kisses and deep, heartfelt conversations that when a 13-year-old little boy with bad intentions comes up to her and says, you're beautiful, she's not all that impressed. <laughs> Number nine, what do you need to lose? This is an easy one because we all just probably need to throw our phones in the garbage the second we set foot in the house. We need to pay attention to our children. But there's lots of other false prizes in our life. Sports, work, plenty of other distractions. I invite all of you to to deeply critique everything that you do the second you set foot in front of your children. So in closing, closing, we need to build a kingdom view for your children. And this is going to be really challenging because on one hand, they need to understand that they are completely separate from the world. Their worldview should should rub up against the rest of the world in a, probably a fairly difficult way. And they, sh- they will feel that if you train them up. But at the, at the same time, they need to be so loving that when they see those people who are not a part of their worldview, they should weep for them. And this is the contrast that Hebrews point, point, paints for us. Hebrews 10, 32 through 26. I hope this is how my children see life. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. But, but 
sorry, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So you knew that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have, when you have done all the will of God, you will receive what is promised. There's, I can't imagine a more glorious picture of seeing George and Evie one day just having their life relatively destroyed, everything burned down, their career taken away from them, and them just kind of smile and grin, shrug their shoulders and go, I got Jesus, and then just walk into life like that. What a glorious vision for them to have a ground, a kingdom grounding with a good worldview to back that up. Last quote before I pray, N.T. Wright. If you're looking for a good book, Simply Christian by N.T. Wright, the only book that gets me excited about heaven, other than the Bible. (laughs) It's easy to become a heretic up here. Um, (laughs) uh, N.T. Wright says, but, oh, almost read the part. The kingdom will come as the church, energized by the spirit, going out to the world, vulnerable, suffering, praising, praying, misunderstood, misjudged, vindicated, celebrating, always, as Paul puts it in one of his letters, bearing about the body of the dying Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest. Crosspoint, I hope that all of those children, all of those children over there right now through that door walk about the world as though they have the dying Jesus with them. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E ptc.com